Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. Even with strange eons, even death may die. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are totally jumping on the Stranger Things bandwagon. <laughs> Absolutely. We saw how much you guys loved our Lich episode. And so we decided to hop in and cover a very specific Lich, the OG Lich, Vecna himself. I am really excited about this. Now, I'm going to go ahead and start off with the blasphemy. I've only watched like half of the first episode of season one of Stranger Things. Like the 80s nostalgia didn't really tickle my fancy so much. So I was like, eh, I do kind of consider at this point and want to go back and try to pick it back up for the story because apparently people really, really like it. But we've mentioned Vecna a couple times in previous podcasts, particularly as we do our realm deep dives and our planar deep dives. And Vecna is just one of those names that, you know, carries weight in the D&D community. And I always wanted to kind of brush up on my lore because kind of always skipped Vecna for some reason and really sad I have. So I'm really excited to get into this one. Don't feel too bad, James. I got to about I think it was two and a half episodes into season two of Stranger Things. And I've recently just gone back and started watching again to try and catch up to watch season four. The beginning of season two just didn't click for me. But now that I've come back to it, it's starting to. Okay. So. And there are several series that I wound up enjoying that I had to try to get into two or three times. Breaking Bad among them. Deep Space Nine was another one that I had to give multiple attempts to. So it could have just been my mindset at the time I watched it. It could have been my expectation. So I'm definitely going to go in and give it another shot. But back to Vecna. I have always said the best villains are the villains you can relate to. And again, my alignment is a bit different than Ian's and that's fine. Ian's more likely to play the paladin. That's great. I get Vecna. I totally understand Vecna. Yeah, I love it. I get him. I just like, yeah, I'll leave it there. I get him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Vecna is a compelling character from a lore standpoint. His goals are understandable. They are relatable, even if you don't agree with him. Yes. And I would fall into that category. I understand him, but I do not agree with him. I might not appreciate his methodology. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I appreciate his drive. I do not appreciate his methods. (laughs) Anyway, let's go ahead and get started. All right. So Vecna is one of the OG liches of D&D lore, possibly the first one mentioned by name. I haven't looked through anything from 1974-75, you know, the little pamphlets of D&D to see if there are other named liches. I don't think there are. I'm not thinking so. Like I said, that we're going pretty far back in this one. And some of the Easter eggs that were thrown in with the name leads me to believe that he was the first because they realized they had something and they were going with it. And you can tell they wanted Vecna to be something, not just your everyday BBEG thrown in. Well, and at the point when they were creating Vecna, he was already dead. He was already gone. (laughs) I mean, all that remained in the world were the hand and eye of Vecna. Right. There were these two lingering artifacts of his presence. Vecna himself was not on the scene at all. And we'll get into this a bit more, but I think Blizzard took a heavy borrowing from Vecna when they built the lore of Gul'dan. Through the original Warcrafts 1 and 2, uh, Warcraft 3, the relics of Gul'dan, you know, you had the skull of Gul'dan and just the tools that Gul'dan used that were 
imbued with magic by his mere presence. And Vecna kind of started that. I think that tradition began with Vecna. I can definitely see that. So let's start off with the name of Vecna. Okay. Vecna's name is, in fact, an anagram of the last name of Jack Vance, the author of the Dying World series, because magic, as it was introduced in D&D from early on all the way up through probably leading into fourth edition, functioned on this Vancean magic system where the spells are discrete, tangible things and spellcasters have to memorize their spells. And so the specific spell that you want to cast is stuck in your head for that day. Right. It's like the worst earworm ever. Yeah. That means that you have to do the ritual to memorize it and the spell level that you memorize it at, that's what you got. And then once you cast that spell, poof, it's gone. It removes itself from your memory. You can't cast it again, even if you wanted to, without going and memorizing it again. That would be the best way to get rid of an earworm. Like you got baby shark stuck in your head, so you're just going to throw fireball. Why not? <laughs> That's a, uh, what is it? Conjure aquatic creatures. Yes. <laughs> I summon sharks. <laughs> yes. Sharknado. And so Vecna is Gary Gygax's way of paying homage to Jack Vance and the influence that his magic system in the dying world played in the creation of the magic system within original Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. Because again, original Dungeons and Dragons was just a bunch of geeks doing geek stuff oh, yeah. pretty much like it is today. So, I mean, that tradition continues. So it is very wonderful. Some of Vecna's other monikers, the most common one is the whispered one, but some of the other ones include the maimed Lord, master of the spider throne, the undying King, the Lord of the rotted tower. All of these are different monikers that he has taken over the course of the entire lifespan of his presence in D&D. And again, right. he was first mentioned in the OD&D supplement Eldritch Wizardry, which was a supplement for the Greyhawk setting written in 1976. Right. He's been around since almost the inception of D&D. Yes. And again, at this point, too, he was around, but just the mere mention and memory of him. So he goes about as far back as you possibly can. And at this point, he is just a lich, an extremely powerful lich, but he was just a lich. He didn't have any additional special aspects to him. Right. He was just a long gone lich who is so powerful that his magic lingered in these body parts that he left behind. So within the Eldritch Wizardry book, just to give you some context on how influential this one book happened to be on D&D across the ages, some other artifacts that were presented in this book alongside the Hand and Eye of Vecna, the Mace of Cuthbert appears in there, the Sword of Cass, because from the onset, the vampire Cass and Vecna killed each other. That has been canon lore since it was introduced. Exactly. The Axe of the Dwarvish Lords, the Wand of Orcus, the Rod of Seven Parts, Baba Yaga's Hut, and the Orbs of Dragonkind. All of those artifacts were present in this book, along with Psionics. This was the first instance of Psionics, as well as the Monk and Druid classes and the entities Orcus and Demogorgon. Who also makes a nice appearance in Stranger Things Season 4, from what I understand. Well, Demogorgon was Season 1. Was Demogorgon Season 1? Okay, perfect. Yes. 
Demogorgon was season one. Okay. The Demogorgon as presented in Stranger Things was not the two-headed demon monster that is presented in D&D. It is a different sort of monster, but it was referred to as the Demogorgon because that was the big bad monster that the kids' party was fighting when Will disappeared. Gotcha. So yeah, again, these are foundational pieces of D&D lore. So again, we're going back and this is as old and solid into D&D as you can get. Yeah, pretty much. So the lore for the hand and the eye started to get fleshed out in the first edition DMG in 79, where he is only referenced as a long destroyed lich of great power, only able to threaten those who dared use his artifacts. So it goes ahead and by that description suggests that he might still be around in some capacity. I was going to say that because if you go back two weeks ago to when we did our Lich episode, again, if you fully destroy the Lich and their phylactery, their body fully decomposes. So the fact that there is some physical remnant of this Lich should have been sending warning bells to anyone and everyone. This is not a good thing. If you kill your Lich and your Lich is not fully gone, you have done it wrong, my friends. You have done it wrong. So continuing on, if... They continued to flesh him out a little bit more in the second edition DMG in 1989. And then they further solidified who and what Vecna was in the 1990 Greyhawk adventure, Vecna Lives. Because the Lich came back the very next day. (laughs) And Vecna Lives is... A problematic module. I'm just going to put it out there. We'll talk about it again in a little bit whenever we're talking about the actual biography of the character of Vecna as opposed to how he is presented throughout lore. But by the time of Vecna lives, Vecna has somehow managed to get a hold of both his hand and his eye. I don't know how, but but he starts the module with them. Okay. Which is... Confusing for me because for whatever reason, he isn't able to see his body parts from previous bodies because that's what these are. Right. They are leftover remnants from previous bodies that he had. Sometimes it's plot armor and we just don't ask. Yeah. (laughs) But somehow he managed to get his hand and eye back. And by this point at the opening of Vecna Lives, he is effectively a demigod because the ritual where he and Cass fought and killed each other kind of worked. It didn't fully get off. You know, it's kind of like when you pull that cake out half baked and it's almost there. That was one of those, you know, it's edible cake on the outer, you know, three inches of cake all the way around. The center is still a little goopy. He made a lava cake. (laughs) It was a happy accident. (laughs) Um, So at the end of Vecna lives, he ends up getting locked into his own personal domain of dread in Ravenloft. And the next adventure, Vecna Reborn, deals with him trying to get out of Ravenloft. And eventually, canonically, he is able to get out of his domain of dread in Ravenloft. And he breaks into the city of Sigil. Which, as far as lore goes, that is... Quite the amazing feat. Holy crap. Because the city of Sigil is designed to keep gods and demigods out. And he's like, no, just I'm doing it. And he manages to walk into it. And so the whole part of the third adventure, Die Vecna Die, is all surrounding your efforts to keep Vecna from actually finishing a ritual to achieve greater godhood 
and you end up partnering with the Lady of Pain, who is the ruler of the city of Sigil, in order to prevent Vecna from achieving greater godhood and completely restructuring the cosmos as it was when. as it was known. And the module Die Vecna Die was actually the very last second edition module published. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, it was designed as a way to explain why everything changed so drastically between second and third edition. That is a beautiful capstone they did. Well done. It was a narrative way to explain how everything changed. Okay, I like that. I really do like that. So, let's get into the biography of the character of Vecna. Vecna. You know, I am of the opinion, personally, that Vecna is not actually his real name. Vecna is an assumed name. I can see that, so he's kind of doing like a whole Voldemort Tom Little thing. Yeah. I could totally see that. Because he is the master of secrets. He is. And And it would be within his character to present a false name for himself. Absolutely. Because names have power. Exactly. And I was going to go on that. And so as we get into his Tome of Vile Darkness, that is one of the things that I am sure he collects and hoards are true names. And I really want to see the Oomancy School of Magic come out at some point because, again, this would be a beautiful fit. So Vecna was born in the city of Fleef on the world of Orth, home to the Greyhawk setting. As all villain origin stories go, he was a member of the Untouchable cast. Because, of course, we have to have the little orphan boy at the bottom of the totem pole who has to claw his way up to the heights of ruling the world. Sometimes we just use tropes. Yeah. <laughs> tropes exist for a reason, man. Exactly. So his mother was a witch and an alchemist who consorted with dark entities and was a priestess and warlock of an ancient serpent god. In the books, I can only ever find it referred to as the serpent. Okay. This leads a lot to speculation. And as a DM, you can do a lot with this because there are a lot of serpents you can kind of toy with. AJ Pickett did a wonderful video. It's about a four-year-old video now, but it's still amazing on Vecna. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. So you should definitely go and watch it. But he kept referring to this serpent as... uh, I'm purely doing this off of phonetics because I couldn't find it written down anywhere. But uh, Moxalik. Okay. I think that's how he's saying it. He's got that New Zealand accent, so it's kind of hard to be 100% certain. Okay. And it's a fantasy name from the 90s, so it's going to have like five apostrophes in it. Of course. And like some glottal stops. <laughs> yeah. But the primary god of the Yonti, Mirshalk is an aspect of this world serpent god. And this world serpent god is supposed to be the god of magic. And it started off as all of the humans in this region worshipped this world serpent as a god of magic. And then as they expanded and split off into their own smaller individual cultures, they took bits and pieces of this world serpent and broke it apart And so everyone started worshiping aspects of the god as opposed to the god itself. And eventually the god itself ended up fading into oblivion, basically. As they do when they no longer have worshippers. Yeah. I mean, again, if you wanted to bring this, you know, from second edition to something, you know, current or modern. Was it Nidhogg? Nidhogg? Uh, Nidhogg? Yeah, the snake that's Loki's 
Is it Loki's child? Yeah. Yeah, that's supposed to eat the roots of Yggdrasil and the world tree and bring the end of the world. This would be a great aspect to bring in because, again, the serpent, it could be really any serpent. The Yontis fits perfectly. So according to the Forgotten Realms wiki page, okay, they keep referring to it as Asmodeus. Also a possibility. Because if you remember going back to when we were talking about the Nine Hells, Asmodeus and Jazirian used to be together the Ouroboros. Right. And then they fought and Jazirian won and cast Asmodeus into Bator. Yeah. And again, that would also be a wonderful thing. Yeah. Because AJ Pickett does talk about the world serpent. And how all of these serpentine gods were once these proto-gods, basically. All of these serpent proto-gods existed before the real rise of humanoid civilizations. And this would fall into line with something that would work for that. That really would. So you can really just, at this point, pick the scary serpent god or deity or whatever of your choice and kind of plug it in. Something that is going to be very knowledgeable and going to be very temptuous and secret is kind of the theme on this one. So again, you can do a lot with this. You can kind of manipulate this one to fit your story and lore however you need. Yeah, so Vecna's mom was a priestess and warlock of this ancient serpent god. And she taught Vecna the basics of all of his arcane skills. And then at one point, a princess of Fleef came to her for a medicinal remedy. She made it. She gave it to the princess. She gave the princess specific instructions on how to take it. The princess promptly ignored those instructions and ended up poisoning and killing herself. Great. This is why you always finish the full run of your antibiotics. Well, this is also (laughs) why you read the dosage instructions. This is also true. (laughs) When it says no more than 800 milligrams in a four hour period, they mean that. If 800 is good, then like 1600 has got to be great, right? Yeah, no, (laughs) don't do that. That is how you destroy your liver or your kidneys or both or your stomach lining or whatever. All of the above. Check all of the above. Yeah, don't (laughs) don't do that. This is our public service announcement for this week. Read and follow the dosage instructions of your medications. (laughs) Very good. Continuing on, because the person who died was a princess, their parents were understandably quite upset about all of this and ordered unreasonably, I will argue, that as a punishment, Vecna was to be dragged out in front of his mother and killed in front of her to send a message. That's kind of a crappy thing to do. Given this, do they say specifically what the princess was going to Vecna's mother for, for medicine, quote, quote? No. Because, you know, hedge witches had a very specific role for certain things that maybe a princess might have wanted to avoid that certain, say, Supreme Court rulings would have caused someone to go to said hedge witch. And if said incident happened, then this would definitely be a recompense you would imagine someone trying to pull off. Yeah. I'm dancing around the subject really lightly here. I'm not going to say that this doesn't have real world implications for our current political climate. I'm just throwing that one out there. Anyway, let's continue on. (laughs) So instead, Vecna's mother ended up sacrificing herself in place of him so that he could escape. And they burned her at the stake because she's a witch. She weighed as much as a duck. And there you go. AJ Pickett theorizes, though this is never actually written anywhere, that the price of her pact 
with the serpent as a warlock was her firstborn. And so Vecna was the price that she had to pay to get her power. And so he had to live because that was the price that she promised. Okay. That would also make sense. I mean, and that would also make sense from a power scaling standpoint because Vecna became the most powerful wizard the world had ever seen and probably right. has ever seen. Right. You can go through and I mean, the obvious answer would people, well, you know, obviously Vecna's mother loved Vecna, but through other lore, it says that Vecna's mother was extremely harsh and wicked. And this also influenced Vecna. So I don't know what that mother son bond was entirely like. Maybe she was just weird and showed her love in a weird way. And then when it came down to that final moment, eh, but from other lore, it doesn't really sound like it. No, it doesn't. And so Vecna ended up finding a ritual to get in contact with the serpent. And the serpent, according to lore, is the entity who taught him magic. Now, going through this is older lore. If you go and check the D&D Beyond portfolio for Vecna, which is primarily 5th edition, there is a slight break in lore, and we can discuss why these breaks in lore can happen. Per the lore, after Vecna's mother's died, a guild of mages took him in and at first made him a boot black and then kind of like an errand runner. And while he's there doing menial servants tasks, he would sneak into the library and read lore while he's still getting whispers from potentially the serpent or some other voice. They don't say exactly who, though they do imply certain entities. So at this point, was Vecna self-taught completely? Was he raised with a bunch of guild mages or something like that? Again, he starts getting a little bit of that Joker aspects where he starts developing multiple origin stories and all of them could apply. And the truth is probably somewhere in between all of them. Well, and it fits the persona of the God of Secrets again. Yes. His true origin story is not going to be something that anybody can just go out and find. Exactly. No, he's going to keep. Yeah, he's going to keep that hidden because his origin story is a potential key to find a weakness to overthrow him. Absolutely. So that is definitely something where because he does that on the regular where he finds a tidbit of information and then he scours all record of that information from the cosmos. Because now it is his information and no one else's. Absolutely. That is a thing that he does and it would not surprise me in the least if the discrepancies and the muddled bits of history, even within the lore... Are created by Vecna? Yeah. I would love that. That would be... Yeah, no. That is headcanon... We're going with that one. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So as he grew in power, his only goal became seeking immortality at any cost. So he ended up gaining the knowledge to become a lich. By many accounts, he was the first lich. Lich Prime. Yes. There are differing accounts on how he gained the knowledge to become a lich. Even from second edition in Vecna Lives they give three potential options probably because this is the first time they're ever really talking about it. And so they wanted to give DMS some options to play with. But one of them was that he gained the knowledge from another entity like Orcus or possibly even the serpent. One was that the gods 
cursed him with lichdom because of his wickedness. So rather than allowing him to achieve proper immortality, he was cursed with this undeath sort of in between immortality, but not really. Okay. I kind of like that too, because as we mentioned, I mean, Vecna, obviously, again, keeper of secrets and shadows. That's just how he does. He keeps lore, he hoards lore and wisdom like a dragonwood or information. But he tried to ascend to godhood and his spell got muddled and he only became a demigod. I could see this fitting kind of like his MO that he was trying to achieve immortality and somehow the spell got muddled and so he achieved lichdom instead. So like he almost made it, but just something... And that would fuel that drive for more knowledge because obviously he missed something which would be out of his comprehension normally. So now he's got to scour everything even more so to be more sure of what he's doing or maybe to make sure that the next thing he does goes absolutely right. And then there's one more option. And this is the one that I really like because he was doing a great many very macabre, very objectively evil experiments on a lot of mortals, he could have figured out how to do it on his own. He just tinkered it out. I like that. Because he is a super genius. Yes. Even before he became a lich. I mean, he was like an early D&D. He had an intelligence of like 22, 24. Nice. So, I mean, yeah, he's. Yeah, he was a super genius. I love it. And so he had the intellect necessary to figure it out. I like that option. And he had the lack of scruples to do the research to figure it out. And given that he is credited with, some say, creating fully, and some say just as a major contributor to the Tome of Vile Darkness, one of the books where if you get hold of it, you can use that to gain the knowledge to become a lich without having to make a pact with an otherworldly entity, put two and two together If Vecna figured out with his own research how to become a lich, he would have put it into the Book of Vile Darkness. He absolutely would have. And again, the Book of Vile Darkness, because it is tied in with Vecna, does have a bit of shading because there is lore saying that Orcus or this voice or whoever it was speaking to him told Vecna to record all of his nightmares. And that's where this kind of started from. So could this have been the way one of those entities had given him access to the information? Again, that is one of the things with Vecna is there are so many possibilities and all of them work equally well. Yes. So early on, after becoming a lich, as he was building his empire, referred to as the occluded empire, Vecna was ambushed and nearly destroyed by a group of clerics of Palor. Dirty bastards. Oh, wait. (laughs) But he was saved by the actions of his lieutenant and former apprentice, Aserarach. Yes, that Aserarach. The one that we mentioned a couple weeks ago who ended up making the uh, Tomb of Horrors. Yes. Yeah, that Aserarach was Vecna's apprentice and, at this point, his trusted lieutenant. It turns out that Aserarach had actually orchestrated the ambush. He set everything up simply so that he could come in at the 11th hour and save the day and gain favor from Vecna for having saved his life. That sneaky bastard. And it would have worked, too, if Vecna hadn't figured it out. Ah, smart, smart, smart. (laughs) He was able to eventually suss out that Aserarach had played a role in that whole encounter and ended up falling out of favor with Vecna for that 
uh, as you for, would. I mean, hey, you you're set me up for assassination attempt. Yeah, I'm not letting you hold the keys anymore, dude. We're done. So at that point, he starts leaning more towards a new trusted lieutenant, who is this paladin turned anti-paladin named Cass. And Cass ended up becoming his most trusted lieutenant to the point where Vecna ended up using his magic to turn Cass into a vampire. So, As you can. Again, non-hemophage vampires. He just, yeah, you know what? I need a vampire. I'm just going to make one. Ta-da. Yes. I'm not a vampire. I'm just making vampires. <laughs> that should go to show you just how powerful he was. He yes. was able to spontaneously create a vampire. Yeah. That is swinging some massive energy right there. Yeah. And as Cass continued to work for him and continue to gain trust and continue to gain influence in the presence of Vecna, he received the moniker of Cass the Bloody Handed. Kind of a cool name. It is. (laughs) And Vecna ended up making Cass a sword as basically his badge of office. That because Vecna made it and there was such an aura of evil surrounding Vecna, At the time when he was making it, that evil suffused itself into the sword, making the sword sentient. That is, yes. Now we have sentient weapons, boys and girls. We're starting all of the good stuff early with Vecna. And then because, as we have talked in the past, evil correlates very strongly to selfishness in D&D alignments. Right. Cass has this sentient sword that is a sword of pure evil. And so what does it do? It starts telling him, you know, Cass, Vecna has you doing all the administrative duties of his empire. He already has you running the show and you are doing a bang up job of it. All he's doing is holding himself up in his tower and doing his research and completely ignoring the administration of this empire that you are holding together for him. Don't you think that you should really be in charge? Absolutely. And we've all seen Game of Thrones. We all know where this is going. Absolutely. Yes. The sword is Littlefinger. Yeah, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> Holy crap. That's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. The sword of Cass is Littlefinger. Oh my God. I love that. And so the culmination of everything going on in the world is Vecna amasses this undead army, tens of thousands strong, and he marches them onto the city of his birth. He marches on the city of Fleef. And the aldermen who run the city see this approaching army and know that they can't stop it. And so they go out and they sue for peace. And they draw lots and one of them and his family are brought out of the city and are ostensibly sacrificed to Vecna under the auspices of we will sacrifice ourselves so that the city can live. I mean, you kill a boy's mommy. He's probably going to hold a little bit of a grudge. Just putting that out And there. all of his lieutenants are telling him, yeah, you should take this deal. You really should. And Vecna is like, nah. <laughs> and he demolishes the walls and his army goes in and creates a mountain of the severed heads of the populace of the city um, with the wives and children of the aldermen stacked in the front so that all of the aldermen can see him. Like I said, a little bit of a grudge. And the final twist is that after all of that is done, he announces that the aldermen who were in his camp the entire time were to be granted protection and allowed to leave. Okay. Yeah, that was what it was. He made them watch. And then he said, yeah, you can go now. 
that's exactly fitting because again that's exactly what they were going to do to his mother exactly again just a little bit of a grudge just a tiny tiny one right and this whole process was to provide enough soul energy for him to fuel his initial ascension attempt and so he's working on the ritual and in the middle of the ritual Cass takes advantage of Vecna being distracted to go and try to unalive him with his sword. They fight. Vecna ultimately wins the fight. He goes in to land the final blow to kill Cass, and Cass cuts off his hand, and then he stabs him in the eye. And the energies of the ritual do weird things that happen whenever rituals go off half-cocked, and the rotting tower where he is working his magics ends up getting blown to pieces and all that they find in the wreckage of the tower is Vecna's hand, Vecna's eye and the sword of Cass. Right. So this is what we call generally a a spell backlash or, you know, a spell recoil going through here. There's also a bit of deviation from various editions. So in second, third, I think in the original, when they're discussing this, they presume Vecna and Cass both had perished in this event. If you look at fifth edition lore during the write-up, they just say they disappeared and they skip the assumption of their demise. Again, depending on who's writing the stories or who's influencing anything, if Vecna in any way could influence that, I could see this being one of those things he would muddle. Was he destroyed and then come back via phylactery? Was he able to limp away and kind of regenerate and heal himself later and kind of recoalesce his power? That one can go either way. And that leaves the DM some great storytelling options to kind of fit whatever story or hook in the middle they want. So Vecna was assumed destroyed whenever the ritual seemingly failed. But what was actually happening was he was laying low and biding his time because the Vecnates, the cult of Vecna, had found the hand and the eye and the sword of Cass and had taken them and were treating them basically as holy relics. Right. And so he actually developed a cult following starting to worship him. And because he was still actually in existence somewhere... He wasn't actually dead. He was able to hear the supplication of his cultists through his artifacts and was able to answer them, which only reinforced this worship. And so the hand and the eye became holy relics or unholy relics, as the case may be, (laughs) that started to siphon in little trickles of divine magic. And this, again, going back to one of those things, with the older editions, they're not entirely clear on where or what Vecna's phylactery is. We'll brush up on this later. So was Vecna just disembodied in his soul and his phylactery so he could hear this? Or if you read other things, he was, in fact, possibly killed. But because his soul never transitioned for whatever reason, and he had enough power from this cult of worshippers, that's what eventually brings Vecna back in a physical form in this demigod state. Are you suggesting a spontaneous generation of Vecna? Yes. Due I love it. to sheer clerical or divine energy from the followers. And again, being Vecna, the fact that there is not a clear answer fits. And this actually can be supported in D&D lore. Yes. Because the race of the Kuatoa they are able to spontaneously generate gods. If a Kuotoa is able to get enough other Kuotoans 
to believe what they believe, they will spontaneously generate a god based off of that belief. And who would know this? Fucking Vecna. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. It all works. So eventually he manages to receive enough power that we get to where the adventure module Vecna lives begins. So the way that the setup is the city of Greyhawk is starting to have issues with their divination spells. All of their divination spells are starting to inexplicably point towards some unknown sort of dread. Something bad's coming, boys and girls. They're coming up with some sort of inconsistencies. If you have watched or listened to Exandria and Limited Calamity, you understand where this is sort of going, which if you haven't, you need to. Okay. Because Brendan Lee Mulligan is the DM for it, and it's just amazing. But the Circle of Eight, who are the eight very powerful wizards in the city of Greyhawk under the leadership of Mordenkainen. They're sent out to where the source of this interference is coming from. And you've probably heard of almost all the names of these eight wizards. So you have Odaluk, Bigby, Tensor, Otto, Dromish, Nistel, and Rory. And then you have Jalarzi, who is the only one that I don't think has any spells named after her. She's also the only woman in the group and she is a new addition. And I think that whenever they were writing it, they didn't want to kill off Mordenkainen. Gotcha. And so they had to remove Mordenkainen from the ring and add someone in. Yeah, we can't kill Mordenkainen. So that, that, um, that just be because Mordenkainen is the initial quest giver in this module. Yes. But all of these big names who have all of these iconic spells like Odaluk's Resilient Sphere, Bigby's Hand, Tensor's Floating Disc, Otto's Irresistible Dance, Dramage's Instant Summons, Rory's Telepathic Bond. All of these very iconic spells, all of the wizards who created them are in the Circle of Eight. These are the heavy hitters. I think the lowest level one of them is a 14th or 15th level wizard. Okay. One of them is 14 levels of wizard and five levels of cleric. Oh, oh my. But most of them are like 16th to 20th level wizards okay. in this group. And so when you start this module, this is where the issues with this module start. You start where the players at the table are playing these characters. Okay. They are playing these high powered wizards. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah. And you go in and you have to work through the dungeon going in. You know, you come into a room. It's just a room in a cave from the looks of it. And there's a wall with some writing on it that is a glyph of protection against evil. And it is meant to imply keep evil out. Okay. But it's actually to keep evil in because Ooh. this is the crypt where Vecna is imprisoned. Okay. Where they put up all of these protections, like they found where he was going to respawn, basically, okay. and they put all of these magical protections in place to keep him in. As you would want to do. As you would want to do. And Vecna is throwing out all of this magical interference with all these divination spells, and they've gone to figure out what it is, but they don't know that Vecna's in here. Okay. Because there's nothing to indicate it with all of the protections, because all of them look like they're designed to keep people out. Gotcha. We, we need the, um, the general Akbar moment here. It's a trap. So here is the part where it turns out that this is a really lousy module. So they get to the room where Vecna is sitting in his sarcophagus, right? Okay. They all come into the room and that is the trigger for the cutscene because literally what happens is the DM says, okay, 
Vecna pops up and he casts Time Stop. And then he just goes over here and he mercs six of you. Oh, geez. Yeah, he can make two attacks per turn. Each attack is an instant kill because you are paralyzed because of the Time Stop spell. And it is if it hits you, you die. Just boom, 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 boom. This has the feel of the early intros to a lot of the JRPGs that were around in the yeah. late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. They totally stole that. <laughs> and then whenever that wears off, six of the eight are instantly killed. And then the other two are killed with either a cone of cold that deals 20d4 plus 20 damage. Oof. Or a cause serious wound spell or a disintegrate. As will happen. Yeah, this is just kind of like, you know... Big bad villain flex, so you have that thing you're going to want to beat up later, so you kind of know where you need to be to come back. This is definitely a a JRPG trope. I want to read the after the battle segment from this module whenever you get done just murking everybody's characters. Okay. It says, as soon as the battle is over, your players are likely to be in shock over the swift, ruthless nature of their party's demise. You think? Good role players should be able to deal with this. And truly clever ones may intuitively understand the overall purpose of the scene. If you can, let the shock of what has happened slowly sink in. That will give it greater impact. However, not all players may be so calm. Some may become angry and accuse you of being unfair, which, of course, you were. The characters were never supposed to stand a chance. Keep your own temper and blame the designer of this adventure if you must. After everyone has accepted their fate, tell your players to turn in their character sheets. These characters are dead. Then begin with chapter one. This sounds like this was written by GLaDOS. (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) Damn. That is verbatim from the module. That is, wow, okay. (laughs) And this is why Matt Colville understandably and correctly says that this is a terrible module and you shouldn't run it. Yeah, I could see you would have to know your players to do this. Give everyone a cookie afterwards. You know, personally, I understand the impact of having your very powerful character suddenly die. I can understand the impact of that from a storytelling perspective, but I think it would make a much better effect if you let them know ahead of time, okay, by the end of this session, all of these characters will be dead. Yeah, because if you go into the game thinking the game is broken, you're going to be looking for the next point where the game is broken. And anytime anything goes wrong or sideways, you're going to think it's designed so you cannot win. And that really ruins the immersion of the game. Yeah, so I would definitely let the players know, okay, this is the cutscene that shows how these very powerful wizards die. Yeah. In a way that is designed to show how powerful Vecna actually is. Yes. A little bit and of so spoilers. what we are doing well, is we are basically doing a quick time event where you get to see the cutscene where all of these people get murked. Yeah. And I think if you present it like that, then your players can go in and have fun role playing these really kind of, like I said, the wizards that go in are the heavy hitters. So they can go in and raffle stomp whatever they're doing up to Vecna to get a feel of how strong these characters are and then watch them themselves get raffle stomped as a comparison of power level. Yes. All right. So as part of this adventure, after Vecna gets out, he ends up making his way into the quasi-elemental plane of dust and seizing Citadel Cavitus from the Doom Guards. This is the Citadel that is in the shape of a giant skull. 
right. that is out in the plane of dust that we talked about when we were talking about the quasi-elemental planes. Even grabbing the Citadel in its own is, again, quite an impressive flux. It sure is. And I wasn't able to read too terribly much in to the whole module because the whole module is like 68 pages long. Oh, wow. And I had to do three modules plus all of the other <laughs> background information. I didn't have time, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Quitter. But he ended up drawing the ire of the demigod Ayuz, who is the son of Grazd. And I think his mother is Igwilv, who is Tasha. Oh, good people you want to piss off. I like it. And so eventually at the end of the module, the party ends up having to ally themselves with Ayuz. So the demigod Ayuz is fighting Vecna. And basically you're playing crowd control to keep Vecna's minions from overwhelming the fight and causing Ayuz to lose. Okay. Which is appropriate because it's two divine beings you as adventurers are not supposed to be able to fight them. Right. It is an honor just to be in the room. <laughs> yeah, because at the end of Vecna Lives, I think the party is supposed to be like 15th level. Okay. So it's a like a level 12 to 15 adventure arc. Good deal. And so canon-wise, as part of all of this, Vecna and Citadel Cavitus are drawn into Ravenloft, and they become Vecna's domain of dread within Ravenloft which is the premise for the second Vecna-based adventure module, Vecna Reborn, where he is trying to work with his cultists to have a special ritual involving a pregnant woman who will, in effect, if the ritual is successful, give birth to the reincarnation of Vecna. That's basically Rosemary's baby, right? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. And so the whole point of this is to prevent this from happening because this would be uh, Vecna's way to get out of Ravenloft. Okay. Which Ravenloft is already sort of bending the rules because Ravenloft isn't designed to keep in demigods. Yeah. So Vecna, in the end, ends up canonically figuring out how to break out of Ravenloft. And again, if Vecna is in fact a demigod and not just a lich, and again, power level, we can go back and forth on that one. It fits. It would make sense that he could eventually break out of Ravenloft. Like they didn't really have a better place to stick him at the point. So they stuck him there and it's like, we'll deal with that problem later. Maybe, maybe that was the best they could manage at the point of the end of Vecna lives. And well, so, I mean, was it the Dreadlords, the mysterious power that actually draw these evil entities into Ravenloft and imprison them within their domain of dread. Right. I think it's the dreadlords. They may not have known at that time that they couldn't actually imprison a demigod here. That would be a rough way to learn that lesson. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, this is possible. And so canonically he manages to break out. I think he's kind of sort of absorbs Ayuz and uses him as sort of a divine battery okay. to empower this. I'm getting discrepancies between what I'm reading and what AJ Pickett is putting in his videos. Okay. Mainly because he has access to resources that I don't. Okay. Specifically, Dragon Magazine Edition 348. Okay. Yeah, Dragon Magazine 348 is one where a lot of the Vecna stuff is, occurs. Is recorded. Okay. But so I use is used to break him out of Ravenloft. And he breaks out of Ravenloft and goes directly from Ravenloft to Sigil, 
Because why not? He's starting easy. He's just taking a nice easy path, kind of taking it light. We're going to go to an impregnable city. Yes, we're going to a city that is designed to keep gods out. And he is just going to walk in. Yeah, just going to kick in the door. And so he starts using the city, which is the hub around which the outer planes of existence rotates. Yes. And the entire third adventure module, Die Vecna Die, centers around the Lady of Pain ending up conscripting the adventurers to come and help her stop Vecna. As you would want to do. And that's saying something because the Lady of Pain is another one of these proto-god super powerful beings. Right. You know, she is more powerful than the individual gods of the different pantheons, which is why she has the power to shut them out of the city. Right. And eventually, at the end of the module, canonically, Vecna is stopped So he doesn't become a greater god. He doesn't rewrite the structure of the cosmos. He gets cast back to Earth where he is greatly weakened, but he is still a demigod. And eventually he is able to get the attention of the overgod Ao, who is the god who created all of the gods, and somehow manages to negotiate with him and actually become a proper god. He's instilled in a pantheon. So from third edition on all of the Wizards of the Coast books, Vecna is actually a proper god. Now, I like this and I'm also terrified of this too, because as we have shown and discussed in the past, sometimes the gods can be killed or absorbed or otherwise defeated or fade into lack of memory and they just kind of fade out. But Vecna was and still is a lich and is also a deity. He has a deity with the benefit of a phylactery. So even if as a deity he was defeated and destroyed, unless that phylactery is destroyed, he's coming back. Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) Vecna is not going away. No. And uh, while I have not gotten to season four of Stranger Things to see how Vecna is presented in Stranger Things, I have watched season one of Critical Role. Oh, yes. And Vecna was the ultimate bad guy that they fought in Critical Role. I'm not throwing out a spoiler alert. This is a five-year-old episode. (laughs) If you haven't watched it yet, that's on you. But Matt Mercer decided to keep Vecna and his title of the Whispered One. And the way that he is operating within Exandria, he is, as I understand it, during the events of Campaign 1, he is at that just a really powerful lich stage. Okay. He hasn't actually achieved any sort of divinity yet which is why he is going through and doing all of the rituals and gathering all the power to do the ritual and then make his display of power to gain his initial followers to get that initial surge to become a god. Okay, I like that. And so as you go back, if you look again at the profile for Vecna with D&D Beyond and in 5e, it states that this is Vecna right before his battle with Cass. So this is before he's reached his demi-divine or divine state. And again, one of the things with Vecna is he is said to be able to travel through time. And so you can manipulate where Vecna is going to arrive, where he's going to present to a party or a story, and in which state. Because if he can travel through time, he can bamf and kind of pop up anywhere. So again, this still gives you a lot 
of options to work with. You can also travel through realms, which I find really interesting. So in our Lich episode, we talked about demi-liches, where a Lich would be kind of tired or they think they've consumed everything they can within the material plane. And so they'd go to the ethereal plane or other planes and slowly waste away. Vecna was actually able to take him whole self to other planes. So he never faced that kind of danger of losing his actual body with the exception of Cass. (laughs) Yeah. And then the goal that Vecna was trying to achieve in Critical Role was he was wanting to become a god on Exandria because of this apparatus that exists called the Divine Gate. The Divine Gate locks the gods off of the world of Exandria. They cannot physically manifest themselves on the world of Exandria. They can't reach there. Okay. And if Vecna had been successful, then he would have been the only god on the Exandria side of the Divine Gate. Ooh, that would have Which would have given him complete free reign to do whatever he wanted because the gods couldn't come down to stop him. That would have been nasty. And so that's why Vox Machina was able to get the Divine Trammels to bind Vecna and ended up banishing him beyond the Divine Gate. So now he achieved godhood, but he's stuck on the proper side of the Divine Gate. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah. So that's Vecna. That's who he is. That's what he is. I do want to comment a little bit on what you said regarding him fiddling with time. Okay. Because basically the way that he was working it in Vecna Lives, where he is in the end fighting with Ayus and trying to achieve proper godhood, what he has done is he has opened up rifts to different locations in time and he is drawing all of his followers from the different places in time through the portals to where he is now to gather all of their divine worship in one time and place i like it he's basically trying to take a shortcut on his you have to have so many worshipers in order to achieve godhood Gotcha. So he is breaking the laws of time to bring everything together. So he's, you know, I've got my 250,000 worshipers across all of these hundreds of years. I'm just going to bring them all together at once. That's a great idea. I love the concept of a spy master. Again, one of my absolute favorite characters in Game of Thrones was Viserys. You know, I love the whole cloak and dagger thing. So like I said, I totally get Vecna. I could see, you know, that hunger for knowledge. Knowledge is power and it just starts looping in on itself in this weird cycle. Absolutely love this character. One thing I do want to dip into a little bit too is some personal headcanon on my end that I did want to bring up. So with the upcoming new Dragonlance books and the Kirn novels that should be coming out here fairly soon, I'm sure Raceland Magier is going to be in there. And if you have Raceland, you're going to have, and I can never say this name right, but Fistandalus, who is one of the big bad dark mages there. And if you look at the two, there's a lot of similarities between Fistandalus and Vecna. And we do know Vecna can jump from realm to realm, from plane to plane, especially if he's in a deity form or a demi form and has maybe aspects like some of these other gods. So Fistandalus can manipulate time. Vecna can manipulate time. Fistandalus was known to go and get a bunch of applicants and test them and try them, find the best and strongest, make them the apprentice, kill all the other applicants, get that apprentice to a certain level, and then consume the apprentice life force and soul, which kind of sounds like the feeding of a phylactery to me. Fistandalus kind of works a bit 
in Dragonlance almost like a Warlock patron would in 5th edition. Fistandalus as Rastlin back and forth, because again, there's a question of who consumed who, tries to go back in time pre-Cataclysm and Dragonlance to kill Tahikas, who is basically the black dragon which would have been the embodiment of Tiamat if you believe that all of the gods in each realm are just aspects of each other. So who else kind of went forward and tried to kill a god to become a god? Again, there is a lot of similarities between these two. And so I'm thinking maybe, just maybe, they're aspects or possibly one and the same. That is completely possible. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, Fizban in the Dragonlance settings is Bahamut. Right. But he isn't called Bahamut in Dragons. Exactly. So, yeah, that is my personal, like, I kind of want to see if they draw those two together. It's my personal headcanon. I love it. The other thing that's popped up with 5th edition is saying now that Vecna is kind of looking towards the throne of the Raven Queen. Because we've talked about her in Shadowfell, where she basically collects and guides all the souls and petitioners and kind of deviates them to which path they are going to go in, in their various afterlives. Well, he's doing that because she can glean knowledge from the souls by them passing through her city. Exactly. And then also he has all of these souls that he can feed into himself. So he has an unlimited source of knowledge and an unlimited source of power for his phylactery, what or wherever it may be. And so yes. I think that possibly could be something for the end of 5e, maybe whatever this next edition is going to be, D&D 50, D&D 6, 5.5, whatever they're going to call it. I think that could be a really awesome story arc for them to cover as well. Yeah. And that is something that is mentioned is that his followers and the Shadar Kai, who are the Shadowfell elves who are adherents of the Raven Queen, are locked in a constant battle yes. where they're trying to break in and the Shadow Kai are trying to keep them out. Because Vecna as a god of the Shadowfell would be terrifying. Strahd's got nothing. No. <laughs> Strahd is just a powerful vampire. He's got nothing against Vecna. Vecna would walk into Barovia and drink Strahd's milkshake. Absolutely. All right. I did want to cover some of the artifacts and magic items associated with Vecna because there's a bunch of them. There are. The most well-known and the ones that predate Vecna as a character in D&D are the Hand and Eye of Vecna. I gleaned this bit from a video that Matt Colville did on his channel about Vecna and about running big bads in an interesting sort of way at your table, which I'm also going to link in the show notes because it is an amazing video and you should go watch it. Talking about the inspirational origins behind the Hand and Eye of Vecna. Okay. They are based off of a character from Michael Moorcock's Eternal Champions series, specifically Corum, who is basically this elf warrior in a world where the elves have diminished and left and humans are starting to take over. And in the books, he ends up getting his hand cut off and his eye put out. As will happen. As will happen. And he goes around for a while with one hand and one eye. And then he ends up getting caught in like a giant's fishing net or something. And within there, he finds this hand and this eye. But this eye is great big giant sized eye that's multifaceted, kind of like a bug's eye. And the hand is a six fingered hand. And so he ends up being able to place the hand to his stump and it grafts itself on and he places the 
eye to his eye socket and it ends up grafting itself on. And with his eye, he's able to see into this sort of limbo, this sort of in-between space, kind of ethereal plane, if you will. And when he looks in, he sees these two barbarian warriors standing there. And as the story goes on, he gets into a bind. And so he instinctively reaches out with the six fingered hand and he grabs these two warriors from this limbo, this other place and pulls them through into his reality. And they go and they kill the thing. And it turns out that they were cursed to be trapped in the eye until they could have a worthy foe. And so they kill the thing that they were summoned for and they're able to have their release. Okay. And then later on in the series, he's in another fight with another bigger thing. And when he goes and he looks into limbo, the thing that those two barbarians killed is now in limbo stuck in his eye. Oh my. And so what happens is if he summons the thing and it kills whatever he summons it to kill, and it's a sufficiently challenging fight, whatever it kills gets trapped in the eye for him to summon later. But if it's not a sufficiently challenging foe it turns on him instead okay that is a good power limiter i like it yeah that was the storyline basis for where the hand and eye of vecna came from gotcha from this michael moorcock series but the hand and eye of vecna as presented in the original books didn't have any set powers to them you have a certain number of powers from these different tables and you roll on the tables to figure out what their powers are because it was early D&D and everything was on a table. <laughs> well, not only that, but it was done intentionally to show that Vecna existed across the multiverse. So every multiversal version of Vecna is a little bit different. So your hand is going to be unique to your table. Okay, I like that. And that's how that was set up. That's actually kind of a cool way to do that. And so in fifth edition, each of them you get one major benefit, one minor benefit, one minor detriment that you roll on the table in addition to everything that they did. Okay. I ended up just for ha-has rolling for the eye, and I actually got one that was really great because the minor benefit was gain proficiency in one skill of the DM's choice. The major benefit was get a plus two to a stat of the DM's choice up to a maximum of 24. And then the minor detriment was you're blind if the artifact is ever more than 10 feet away from you. Nice. I like it. Well, if the Eye of Vecna, after you attune to it, is ever more than 10 feet away from you, you're dead. Yeah. Because removing it from your body will kill you. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So, yeah, the detriment was trivial. So in 5th edition, the other things that the Eye gives by default are it grants true sight. It grants the ability to see through materials as a ring of X-ray vision. And you can expend some of the charges to cast Clairvoyance, Crowd of Madness, Disintegrate, Dominate Monster, or Eyebite. Eyebite's a favorite. And each time you cast a spell from the eye, there is a 5% chance that Vecna devours your soul, turning your character into his puppet and making it an NPC. That's rolling a 1 on a d20. Yep. So if you roll a 1 after you cast a spell, you just hand your character sheet over to the DM and start rolling (laughs) d6s. Yep. Because you are an NPC now. Yay, you're a zombie. No, you are an intelligent puppet of Vecna. Oh, even better. Yeah. Nice. Then with the hand, the default is... It increases your strength to 20 unless it's already higher. All of your weapon and touch spell attacks that you make with the hand deal an extra 2d8 cold damage. And you can expend some of its eight charges to cast 
finger of death, sleep, slow, or teleport. Okay. And each time you use the hand to cast a spell, you have to make a DC 18 wisdom saving throw against the suggestion spell it casts on you, which, if you fail, forces you to perform an evil act. Sometimes it'll give you something specific. Sometimes it lets you choose. Oh, that reminds me of, oh, there was the movie where the guy had the possessed hand and it was running around. It was Devil's Plaything or something like that. It was a cheesy, cheesy movie. But yeah, it kind of reminds me of that. Okay. They also did that in Dead Snow 2. Okay. Did uh, you ever watch Dead Snow? I have not seen that one. But again, it seems like oh. a, a good horror trope. So, Oh, Dead Snow is an amazing movie. Okay. It is a Swedish made movie about zombie Nazis. And it's, you know, college kids going for a weekend in this cabin and they this group of nazis hid this chest full of jew gold in the cabin and something has woken them up and now they're coming to get it and so the college kids in the cabin have to fight off the nazi zombies the first one was made with the intention of it being a serious film okay and it is a campy cult classic amazing film so it's basically army of darkness yes okay perfect i kind of have to catch this now the second one they understood the campy cult nature of the first film and they turned the camp up to like 13 and then broke off the knob oh i love it i love it i love it i love it because they ended up having to revive a bunch of Russian zombies that the Nazi (laughs) zombies killed. So you have communist Russian zombies that they come in to fight the German Nazi zombies at the end. And it's a beautiful piece of cinema. You should go and watch it. Okay. I think it's on Netflix. Awesome. But yeah, it's great. And then getting back on topic, (laughs) you get some additional bonuses. If you happen to have both the hand and the eye, Okay. if you have the matching set, you are immune to disease and poison. Okay. You don't have to make a con save for exhaustion whenever you use the eye's x-ray vision, because normally you would. You can't be surprised if you aren't incapacitated, so it gives you the alert feat. If you have at least one hit point, you regen 1d10 hit points per round. Nice. And you can force a creature that has a skeleton to make a con save. And if they fail, you turn their skeleton to jelly and they instantly drop to zero hit points. Oh, Oh, and finally, here's the big one. You can cast Wish for free once every 30 days. I want this spell right here, this 30-day cast Wish with failing the save against the hand for the evil, I think would be awesome for a DM to pull off. Yeah. Yeah. Like, force your character to make an evil wish. Just do it. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's going to be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. And I don't remember if I talked about this, but the way that you go attuning to these items, these are items that require a certain amount of self-mutilation. Yeah, that'll happen. Because in order to attach the hand of Vecna, you have to lop off your own left hand and then you attach the hand of Vecna to the bloody stump. Well, you can't have three hands. What are you going to do with three hands, really? Come on. And then with the eye of Vecna, you have to pluck out your left eye and then you kind of splorp the eye of Vecna into the empty socket. I kind of like this. I'm also slightly terrified because, again, going back to some orcish lore, you have the orcish clerics and the clerics of Garmush and Garmush. Um, I can never say that properly. Grumsh. Grumsh, yeah. But a cleric with Grumsh with the Eye of Vecna would be terrifying. Yeah. Just putting that out there. Okay, so according to lore, specifically in the 
Dragon 348 issue that I mentioned earlier, there are other parts of Vecna floating around. Parts as parts. They are collectively referred to as the fragments of Vecna. Because he was the original Lich, he lost some portions of his body over the years, but remained connected to them in a certain capacity. So whenever he would reconstitute his whole body at his phylactery, those parts would just remain out in the world, bearing a portion of his power. Personally, I would say that they bear an amount of power correlating to his amount of power that he had at the time he lost them. So as he grew in power, the hand and the eye of Vecna are much more powerful because they were lost much later in his career. Okay. So there were a whole bunch of of these various items. AJ Pickett covers all of them in his Vecna video, so I'm not going to go through each and every one in detail because there's like 12 of them. They include the heart of Vecna, the thumb, index, middle, and pinky fingers of the right hand of Vecna, the molars and incisors of Vecna, the scalp of Vecna, the left ear of Vecna, the right eye of Vecna was one of them. It has the ability to inflict blindness on a creature that makes direct eye contact with it. But yeah, AJ spends like nine minutes covering all of those in his video. So definitely go over and check that out if you want some of those items. The next one that we're going to cover is the Book of Vile Darkness. And we mentioned this a couple of times so far in the episode. The Book of Vile Darkness is a tome of pure evil filled with all manner of dark rituals. Depending on where you're looking in lore, Vecna is either the original creator of the Book of Vile Darkness or simply a substantial contributing author to the Book of Vile Darkness. Right. Whether he created it from scratch or whether he found it and added a whole bunch of stuff to it, that's up for your table, however you want to run it. I kind of like the thought that maybe it was dropped to him kind of like a death note. Yes, I love that idea. And logically, because acquiring the Book of Vile Darkness is one of the ways to become a lich without having to make a deal with an entity like Orcus, it seems to me that Vecna would have been the one that put that information in there. Yes. Especially if he gained the knowledge through his own research rather than getting it as a boon from another entity. And again, if you look at the write-up in D&D Beyond for 5th edition, it does specifically say that it does have the information of how to become a lich within the book. But it also says there's pages that are like blotted out with ink and blood, pages that have been torn out. So as a DM, you can have the information there, but maybe not complete or whole. And again, you can leave that as a DM call. But per 5th edition, at least the concept is in the book. And in that case, if you have someone who is willing to do the things necessary to become a lich, they can figure out something to add to the book, something that is not in the legible portions of the book. And by canon, if you contribute to the book of vile darkness, the contents of the book return to their pristine state. Yes. So by doing an act of evil sufficient to contribute to the Book of Vile Darkness, you can restore the Book of Vile Darkness to gain access to everything it has. Oh, that'd be a lot of stuff to play with. Oh, yeah. And my last note on the Book of Vile Darkness is it's the Necronomicon. Yeah, I could see that. That's what it is. It is the Necronomicon. Okay. He couldn't use the term Necronomicon because it was still under copyright by H.P. Lovecraft. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> I like it. No, that that fits. That's my interpretation of why TSR called it the Book of Vile Darkness, because they couldn't use the term Necronomicon. Okay, no, that's perfect. So the next item is the Sword of Cass. We've talked about it in some amount of detail. The Sword of Cass was created by Vecna for his lieutenant, Cass the Bloody Handed. It is the sword that severed the hand and plucked the eye from Vecna. It is a sentient evil sword. In third edition, I think it was functionally a plus five Vorpal unholy longsword that gave you a plus 10 bonus to your strength score. Wow. Yeah, it was a honking huge weapon, but it was also evil and sentient and would try to take you over and make you do evil things. So there was a payoff to that. Give and take, I get it. But yeah, there is some leeway to argue that the sentience within the sword is Cass, but I don't think it is. I wouldn't think so. I would say it was its own entity birthed from evil. Because it was a sentience that was able to convince Cass to turn against Vecna. Correct. But also because in the Vecna Reborn module, the one where he's in Ravenloft, Cass is in his domain of dread with him in his own castle on the other side of the domain. Okay. So yeah, they are at odds with one another for all of eternity or until Vecna breaks out, which suggests that Cass is still stuck in Ravenloft. That would make sense. Well, he's not a demigod. Yeah. Okay. Okay. A couple of the other ones, the rod of the whispered one. This was a tool created by Vecna for the administration of his realm. It functions like the rod of rulership, which I didn't take time to look up what it is, but I think basically it lets you cast command. Okay. See here. Rod of rulership. You can use an action to present the rod and command obedience from each creature of your choice that you can see within 120 feet. Each creature must succeed on a DC 15 wisdom saving throw or be charmed by you for eight hours. While charmed in this way, the creature regards you as its trusted leader. If harmed by you or your companions or commanded to do something contrary to its nature, the target ceases to be charmed in this way. The rod can't be used again till the next dawn. So it functions like that. Okay. But it also functions as a scrying focus. Nice. So you can use it to scry. The thing is, if you use it to scry, Vecna, regardless of where he is, will know where you are and what you're scrying on. And any priest of Vecna within 10 miles of you will also know where you are and what you're scrying on. And the charges that you use to scry with this thing are restored via human sacrifice. That's a bit of a cost. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, look at who's making it. Granted. The next one is the Tome of Shared Secrets. It allows the reader to gain a bonus on knowledge checks for and attack rolls, skill checks, and saving throws against a specific category of creature for six days. That's kind of awesome. The price of this bonus is a one-point reduction in your constitution score. Ouch. If you heal that constitution damage before the six days is up, the benefits of the tome go away. Good trade. And if you reduce yourself to zero con in this way, your soul is consumed by Vecna and your body becomes a mindless zombie. Because that's what Vecna is going to do. Now, the next one is the Tome of the Stilled Tongue. So it's a legendary book and it has this desiccated tongue pinned to the front cover. The book itself can be used as both a spell book and an arcane focus. Vecna personally made these books. There are four of them in existence, and each one has the tongue of a different wizard who betrayed him 
stapled to the front cover. Okay. Each of the books has several pages of indecipherable scribbles in the opening pages. And then the remainder of the book is blank for you to put all of your various and sundry spells into. As a DM, I would almost want to go back to that circle of eight and it has one of their tongues on it. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't think so, though. I think that this is going to be... No, this would probably predate, because if it's 5th edition, yes. it's before. Okay, perfect. Yeah. These are going to be wizards that came to him whenever he was, you know, ruling the occluded empire. Okay. And then this pleased him greatly, and so he ripped out their tongues. Because it is a spell book, it can only be attuned by a wizard. But once attuned and filled with spells, the character attuned to the book can use a bonus action to cast any spell written within the book without using a spell slot once per day. Nice. I like that. Yeah. You can get free cast a wish every day. Why not? If you have ninth level spells. And while attuned to the book, you may at any time remove the tongue from the cover. And in doing so, you permanently erase all of the spells within the book. Mischief managed. And the final thing is that Vecna watches anyone attuned to the book, is able to see you at any time and will leave you cryptic messages inside the book. I like it. This is definitely the diary of Talmud. Yeah. The messages appear at midnight and they disappear once read. Nice. So that's the book of the still tongue. Just a couple more items. Next one is afterthought. Afterthought is the dagger that Vecna carries around with him. I do like this item. It is fairly fancy. It is in third edition. It was just a plus five unholy dagger. In 5th edition, in the version of Vecna that they just released about a month ago, it's only a plus 2 dagger, but it has extra stuff. If held by Vecna. If held by Vecna. If it's not being wielded by Vecna, it's just a plus 2 dagger. While Vecna is wielding it, if he hits you with it, in addition to the damage that you'll take from the dagger, you also take 2d8 necrotic damage. And you're hit by this entropic magical effect. So at the beginning of each of your turns, you have to succeed on a DC 20 con save. That's a rough con save. Or you take that 2d8 necrotic damage again. Ouch. And while that entropic energy is on you, you can't receive magical healing. Damn. Yeah. That is a, I like that. I mean, that should be the middle finger effect. <laughs> yeah, that is the rough. Yeah. That is the roughness. I like that. I really like that effect. And now the last item on the list. One that I have to bring up because this is the item that lets you know whether or not you're in the in club for D&D. And that is the head of Vecna. (laughs) The head of Vecna is a hoax item. Yes. It was created by DM Mark Stoyer. And he put it into his game just to see what the players would do with it. He put it in and called it the head of Vecna. And the players knew what to do in order to use the hand of Vecna. You have to lop off your hand and then you put the hand of Vecna on and it grafts on and you have the hand of Vecna, right? Well, this is the head of Vecna. What kind of awesome magical stuff is going to happen if we are able to put on the head of Vecna? This is going to be great. And so they get all the stuff together and they get ready to do the ritual and they go and they lop off the wizard's head and then they take the head of Vecna and they hold it to the stump and nothing happens. Hey, you got a dead wizard. 
<laughs> I love it. So the head of Vecna isn't actually the head of Vecna. It is just something that is called the head of Vecna. And it's there to see if you can get your players to kill themselves in pursuit of power. And I love the idea of a false relic too, but that is a different story for a different day. And that was actually made canon in the Die Vecna Die module. Perfect. So it is canon that the head of Vecna does exist. Perfect. All right. I think that brings us to the end. Yes, it do. There is one other thing. There is a monster that is associated with Vecna that I forgot to put in the notes. The Nothic. They are, I think they're technically undead, but they are these sort of hunchbacked, misshapen creatures with one giant cyclopean eye in the front of their face. And they were all formerly wizards who were consumed by a need to uncover secrets, to uncover knowledge. And they were cursed by Vecna and misshapen into the form that they have. So they're all driven by this search for the knowledge that they believe exists on how to return back to their former selves, but they don't remember their former selves. Gotcha. And so they have that whole, I am somebody, I was somebody before now, but I can't remember what that is. And so they're all very angry, understandably about that. And the crux of it is that there is no cure, that it is part of the curse that they believe that there's a cure and that they continue to seek the information to try and find it. So that is the one creature that I know of that has a tie to Vecna. Gotcha. All right. I think that brings us to the end of tonight's episode. Yeah, this was definitely a fun one. I am very happy that I got to take the time to kind of do a deep dive into Vecna. Oh, yeah. I think Father Bear is still favorite, but Vecna is a very close second. Yeah, and having gotten and read through large sections of these three adventures... You know, Vecna lives, Vecna reborn, die, Vecna die. I kind of want to take them and make an adventure using all of that. Like, take it and fix the broken parts and run a game with that. You know, start with your characters at like level 11, run them through to level 20 and just go through. This is the party who consistently shows up and thwarts Vecna's attempts at godhood. Yeah, I like that. But anyway... Thank you, everyone, for listening today. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under commentaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, and TikTok. Just search for Under Common Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. If you'd like to help support the show financially, we would greatly appreciate it if you would come over and become a patron. Finally, we are on Discord, and you can find a link to our Discord channel in the show notes, and we'd love for you to drop in and talk to us. If this is the first episode that you found us with, we thank you for finding us. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify. As always, please subscribe and give us a rating and review. This lets us know what you want to hear more of. Thank you one last time for joining us. This was another longer episode, but there's a lot to talk about with Vecna. Yes, there was. Next week, we're going to wrap up Bytopia. So we will see you then. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. 
You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.